0: Hi, everyone. It's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. As we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. And welcome to Teddy Talks for Saturday, May 23rd, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, future home of Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. And uh, this weekend, home of the Teddy Roosevelt Show, a live performance with an audience at the Old Town Hall Theater on the Bill Sorensen stage. We'll have some 7.30 p.m. performances uh, by me, uh, portraying Teddy Roosevelt, and by Bill Sorensen. In the uh, late May and uh, through the early weeks of June, Bill Sorensen, great comedian, magician, and uh, we're looking forward to having our our friends here in Medora sometime this summer. May 23rd, this date in history, the death by hanging of William Kidd. Captain Kidd, Spanish pirate, uh, uh, born in Dundee, Scotland in 1645. And... uh, I did not know this, but uh, so very often Captain Kidd was sailing from New York, uh, recruiting his crews there, uh, doing so under license, letters of mark uh, from uh, British uh, nobles and the the English government. He uh, would find himself at odds and in trouble with that English government, leading to his arrest in New York City. Uh, He'd actually married a British widow in, in that city. Uh, I didn't realize that uh, on his way back from pirating, and perhaps ineffectively so if you asked his uh, crew, that in 1699, uh, avoiding British authorities, but needing to get to New York, uh, he had moorage at Oyster Bay, Long Island. So he anchored uh, his ship just off the uh, coast. If Theodore Roosevelt were alive then, he could have looked down from Sagamore Hill and seen Captain Kidd in the bay. Captain Kidd was hanged twice on this date. Uh, On the first attempt, the hangman's rope broke. Kid survived. Some of the crowd called for Kid's release. Uh, uh, This is at the execution dock in Wapping in London. And, uh, but uh, uh, they said it was a sign from God that Kid should be released, but he was hanged a second time and his body was gibbeted over the river Thames at Tilbury Point for three years. Uh, This is hanging in chains. You can imagine the rotting corpse a a warning against uh, uh, pirates in the future. May 23rd in 1783, the death in Andover, Massachusetts of James Otis Jr., pamphleteer and legislator, uh, born in 1725 in Barnstable, then Massachusetts colony. A member of the Massachusetts Provincial Assembly, early advocate of the Patriot cause, and and, uh, the the, uh, coiner of the catchphrase, taxation without representation is tyranny. May 23rd, 1810, the birth in Cambridge, Mass, of Sarah Margaret Fuller Osale. Uh, Margaret Fuller, we know her. Uh, she would die July 19, 1850. Uh, Margaret Fuller was a uh, a journalist, an editor, uh, a critic. She was the first female war correspondent, writing for Horace Greeley's New York Tribune. Went to uh, Italy to cover the uh, uh, the Italian Revolution ongoing there, and fell in love uh, with uh, one of the uh, Italian patriots. Uh, She uh, met the leader of the Italian uh, Revolution, Giuseppe Mazzini, and fell in love with Giovanni Angelo Ossoli. Uh, Whether or not they married, it seems the experts have some uh, controversy about that, but uh, they did have a child. And uh, then after the failure of the Revolution, were on their way back to the United States and 100 yards off uh, Fire Island at New York. Uh, The ship hit a sandbar, was sinking. The captain had died of uh, cholera on board the the ship, or uh, smallpox, I'm afraid. Uh, The first mate abandoned the ship, the small Osali family, uh, uh, Margaret Fuller, her husband Giovanni, and their little boy Angelino. All three, Parish. The body of Angelino was discovered on the beach. Henry David Thoreau, sent by Emerson. I remember Margaret Fuller, part of the uh, Transcendentalist movement. Uh, the uh, only body to be found, that of the child, and uh, the uh, the additional connection. Margaret Fuller, uh, she had written a story about the uh, uh, the declaration of the Roman Republic. This is the, the uh, the the loci of the uh, uh, revolution at that time, and the failure of that attempted Roman Republic. She'd written the story, she felt it was her most important work. That draft was lost along with her body and that of her husband. But her papers uh, that existed, uh, they've been collected. They are at the Houghton Library at Harvard University, her birth city, Cambridge, Mass. and, And that's the same Houghton Library that carries the papers of theodore roosevelt a woman in the 19th century a, a wonderful uh, a book they, uh, there's a uh, monument to her at mount auburn cemetery and uh, the body of angelina was buried there and and uh, margaret fuller her husband remembered and it's written on an inscription there by uh, uh, with regards to margaret fuller by birth a child of new england by adoption a citizen of rome by genius belonging to the world. Great American Thinker, if you haven't read Margaret Fuller, I do recommend uh, her uh, Woman in the Nineteenth Century, and you'll also find that there's a Hall of Fame that's referred to when uh, in uh, The Wizard of Oz when the munchkins uh, sing about uh, uh, you'll be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, what, what Hall of Fame are they referring to when they sing to Dorothy? They're singing the Hall of Fame of Great Americans at University Heights uh, in the Bronx, uh, Bronx College uh, located there. The busts are still there. Theodore Roosevelt is in that hall of fame. Uh, She was voted sixth in a mass magazine poll to select 20 American women for that hall of fame. May 23rd, 1824, the birth in liberty, Indiana of Ambrose Burnside, the American general in the Civil War who gave birth to his namesake, Sideburns. Uh, He, with these great mutton chops, even young Theodore Roosevelt himself wore in his years at Harvard. Burnside would go on to be uh, governor of Rhode Island from 1864 to 69, served in the United States Senate as a Democrat from 1875 until his death in 1881. And uh, he was, in 1871, the first president of the National Rifle Association, of which Theodore Roosevelt became a life member himself. May 23rd, 1868, the death at Fort Lyon, Colorado of Christopher Houston Carson. Kit Carson. Fur trapper, explorer, and uh, I'm sure, in a way, the stories of the adventures, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, expeditions on which uh, uh, Kit Carson served as a scout would have been an inspiration to a young Theodore Roosevelt. May 23rd, 1875, the birth in New Haven, Connecticut of Alfred P. Sloan, American businessman and philanthropist. He would die February 17th, 1966 at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Uh, This was the uh, head of uh, General Motors in its heyday, but also a great philanthropist in this issue of uh, finding uh, treatments and eventually, hopefully a cure for cancer. May 23rd, 1910, the birth in Brooklyn, New York of Margaret Wise Brown. And I would only say that perhaps uh, uh, pre or post pandemic, perhaps you've enjoyed some of the children's book, whether reading for your children or grandchildren or for yourself, Uh, Margaret Wise Brown, the author of Goodnight Moon and The Runaway Bunny. Uh, She has been called the uh, laureate of the nursery. May 23rd, 1911, the New York Public Library is dedicated. Guarded by those lions, a, a wonderful visit for anyone headed to the city of New York. We've got remarks from uh, May 23rd and 24th, 1902 from Theodore Roosevelt. First, uh, aboard the French battleship, would one say Colloy, uh, uh, out uh, off the coast of Annapolis, Maryland. And the following day, uh, hosting an unveiling, of a statue to the great naval hero Rochambeau, who of course uh, in part in the Revolutionary War not only defeated uh, British ships of the line, but also participated in the blockade at Yorktown leading to the uh, surrender of Cornwallis there. So uh, Teddy Talks, trying to bring to life not only the character and some of the stories and the entertainments that uh, might derive from the study of Theodore Roosevelt's life, but to really get into the words, the philosophy, and and perhaps greater than any, a philosophy put into action by a life of service. So today's Teddy Talks, uh, starting out in 1902, these uh, um, uh, rather formal remarks with regards to uh, the relationship with France, and then we'll conclude with uh, remarks May 23rd, 1903, in Seattle, Washington, the subject matter being Alaska. May 23rd, 1902, luncheon aboard the French battleship Calloy at sea, Annapolis, Maryland. Mr. Ambassador, we appreciate what France has done in sending to our shores on this occasion, such a magnificent warship. And we appreciate the choice of those who were sent here. And Mr. Cambon, we thank you for your happy good judgment in selecting such an illustrious commander of the army and navy to send to us on the auspicious occasion of the unveiling of the Rochambeau statue. 120 years ago, the valor of the soldiers and sailors of France exerted, according to the judgment of historians, the determining influence in making this country free and independent. Mr. Ambassador, I thank you personally for the courtesy which has been extended to me. It has been a source of valued information to be permitted to see and inspect this splendid French vessel, and I have been duly impressed by its superior mechanism and by the superior physique and discipline of your men. I am sure I speak for the American Navy when I say it has been a source of pleasure that such a splendid specimen of French naval architecture as the glory has visited our shores on such a friendly mission. And in its name, I thank you. Let me, on behalf of all the people of the United States and with certain conviction that I have expressed their sentiments, drink to the health of President Louvet and to the continued prosperity of the mighty nation of which he is president. So really those remarks, a toast to the French. Ah, the following day, May 24th, 1902, the unveiling of the Rochambeau statue at Washington, D.C. Mr. Ambassador, and you, the representatives of the mighty Republic of France, I extend to you on behalf of the people of the United States the warmest and most cordial greeting. We appreciate to the full all that is implied in this embassy composed of such men as those who have been sent over here by President Louvet to commemorate the unveiling of the statue of the great marshal who with soldiers and sailors of France struck the decisive blow in the war which started this country on the path of independence among the nations of the earth. I am sure that I give utterance to the sentiments of every citizen of the United States of every American to whom the honor and glory of our republic in the past, as in the present, are dear. When I say that we prize this fresh proof of the friendship of the French people, not only because it is necessarily pleasing to us to have the friendship of a nation so mighty in war and so mighty in peace as France has ever shown herself to be, but because it is peculiarly pleasant to feel that After a century and a quarter of independent existence as a nation, the French Republic should feel that in that century and a quarter, we have justified the sacrifice France made in our behalf. I am sure, my fellow citizens, that you welcome the chance which brings it about that this embassy of the French people should come to our shores at the very time when we, in our turn, have done our part in starting on the path of independence a sister republic, the Republic of Cuba. Mr. Ambassador, the American people, peculiarly because they are the American people and because the history of the United States has been so interwoven with that, uh, 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 that France has done for us. Also because they are part of the whole world, which acknowledged and must ever acknowledge in a peculiar degree, the headship of France along so many lines in the march of progress and civilization The American people, through me, extend their thanks to you, and in their name, I beg to express my acknowledgments to the embassy that has come here, and to President Loubet, and all of the French nation, both for the deed and for the magnanimous spirit that lay behind the doing of the deed, and I thank you. Let's fast forward to uh, the west coast of the United States, or as uh, very often, uh, Theodore Roosevelt on this tour of 1903 has said, the West that is beyond the West. Remarks uh, uh, at the uh, to the Arctic Brotherhood in Seattle, Washington. Uh, apparently, a good uh, deal of uh, representation from Alaska in the audience, as you'll see by his salutation. Mr. Chairman, and you, men and women, of Alaska. Let me thank you and the members of the Arctic Brotherhood for their greeting. I am happy to say that during the last year or two, the national legislature has begun to realize its responsibilities in reference to Alaska. And that even those of our people who do not not live on the Pacific slope are beginning to understand that in the not distant future, Alaska will be not merely a regularly organized territory but a great and populous state. Very few European races have exercised a more profound influence upon Europe, and none has had a more heroic history than the race occupying the Scandinavian peninsula of the old world. And Alaska lies in the same latitude as, and can and will in the lifetime of those I am addressing, support as great a population as the Scandinavian peninsula. It is curious how our fate as a nation has often driven us forward toward greatness in spite of the protests of many of those esteeming themselves in point of training and culture best fitted to to shape the nation's destiny. In 1803, when we acquired the territory stretching from the Mississippi to the Pacific, there were plenty of wise men who announced that we were acquiring a mere desert, that it was a violation of the Constitution to acquire it, and that the acquisition was fraught with the seeds of dissolution of the Republic. And think how absolutely the event has falsified the predictions of those men. So, when in the late 60s we, we we by treaty acquired Alaska, this great territory with its infinite possibilities was taken by this Republic in spite of the bitter opposition of many men who were patriots according to their lights and who esteemed themselves far-sighted. And but five years ago, there were excellent men who bemoaned the fact that we were obliged during the war with Spain to take possession of the Philippines and to show that we were hereafter to be one of the dominant powers of the Pacific. In every instance, how the after events of history have falsified the predictions of the men of little faith. There are critics so feeble and so timid that they shrink back when this nation asserts that it comes in the category of the nations who dare to be great. They want to know forsooth the cost of greatness, and what it means. We do not know the cost, but we know it will be more than repaid 10 times over by the result. And what it may ultimately mean we do not know, but we know what the present holds, what the present need demands. And we take the present and hold ourselves ready to abide the result of whatever the future may bring. When I speak to you of the Pacific slope, To you of the new Northwest, whose cities are seated here by the sound, I speak to people abounding in their youth and their virile manhood, who do not fear to grasp opportunity as the opportunity comes, and who weigh slight risk but lightly in the balance when on the other side of the scale comes the greatness of triumph, the greatness of acquisition. We took Alaska 35 years ago, and at last we have begun to wake up to the heritage that thereby we have handed over to our children. I speak to you, citizens of Alaska, people who have dwelt therein, to say how much all our people owe to you. During the last year, many wise laws have been put upon the statute book in reference to Alaska. Not as many as should have been put, but a good many. I earnestly hope that Congress will speedily provide for a delegate from Alaska so that the people of the territory may have some recognized exponent whose duty it shall be to place its needs before the national legislature. Meanwhile, with the assistance of the senators and representatives in Congress from this section of the country, I shall do all that in me lies to see that the proper kinds of legislation are enacted for the territory. The immediate cause of the great development of Alaska, of course, is to be found in its minds. But most of the people of this country are wholly in error when they think of the mines as being the sole or even the chief permanent cause of Alaska's future greatness. Alaska has great possibilities of agricultural and pastoral development. Not only her mines, her fisheries, her forests, but her agriculture and her stock raising will combine to make Alaska one of the great wealth producing portions of our republic. I am anxious that our laws should be framed in the interest of those who intend to go there and stay there and bring up their children there and make it in very fact, as well as in name an integral part of this Republic. I ask your help and pledge you my help in the effort to secure such legislation. In the case of the mine, you get the metal out of the earth. You cannot leave any metal in there to produce other metal. But in the case of the salmon fishery, if you are wise, you will insist upon its being carried on under conditions, which will make the salmon fishery as valuable in that river 30 years hence as now. Do not take all the salmon out and go away and leave the empty uh, river for your children and children's children. Take it out under conditions. The conditions are ready to be created for you by the national fish condition which has been so singularly successful in its work, which will secure the preservation of that river as a salmon river, which will secure the perpetuation of salmon canneries along its banks, so that it will not be an industry carried on only by Orientals in the employ of three or four alien capitalists, but carried on in such a way as to be a perpetual source of income to the actual settlers resident in the locality. Just in the same way, I want to have you see that the lumber industry is exploited in such a way which, while giving a great return to those engaged in it at the moment, shall also secure the preservation of the forest for the settlers and the settlers' children that are to come in and inherit the land. I wish to see such land laws enacted, to see them so administered as to be in the interest of the actual settler who goes to Alaska to live, who desires there to produce crops to raise stock, to make a home for himself. Subject to that condition, I desire to see legislation shaped in the spirit of the broadest liberality that will secure the quickest possible development of the resources of Alaska. With that aim in view to have all the encouragement possible given to those seeking to establish by steamship line and by railway, quick and efficient transportation facilities in the territory. Few things have been more typical of our people and have been more full of promise for the future than the way in which the resources have been developed. And when one sees what has been done here during the last few years, I think we have cause to feel abundantly justified in our belief that the qualities of the old time pioneers who first penetrated the woody wilderness between the Alleghenies and the Mississippi who then steered their way across a vast sea of grass from the Mississippi to the Rockies, who penetrated the passes of the great barren mountains until they came to this, the greatest of all the oceans, still survive in their grandsons and successors. Nor must we forget in speaking of Alaska, the immense importance that the territory has from the standpoint of the needs of the nation as a whole, as a dominant power in the Pacific, Exactly as with the building of the Isthmian Canal, we shall make our Atlantic and our Pacific coasts in effect continuous. So the possession and peopling of the Alaska sea coast puts us in a position of dominance as regards the Pacific, which no other nations share or can share. And then that evening after speeches in Everett, Washington and elsewhere in Seattle, Washington, always busy days for Theodore Roosevelt on this great 1903 Western tour. Uh, we come to a, uh, uh, an Alaska reception that evening, May 23rd. Mr. Chairman, and you, men and women of Alaska, I confess I am for the moment a little surprised at the aspect of so many of the Alaskan pioneers I knew that in the immediate future, Alaska would become become a highly civilized community, but I did not know that it had already become so. Seriously, let me thank you and the members of the Arctic Brotherhood for their greeting and their gifts. I am happy to say that during the last year or two, the national legislature has begun to realize its responsibilities in reference to Alaska, and that even those of our people who do not dwell on the Pacific slope are beginning to understand that in the very near future, Alaska will be not merely a regularly organized territory, but a great and populous state. Very few European races have exercised a more profound influence upon Europe and none has had a more heroic history than the race occupying the Scandinavian countries of the old world. And Alaska lies in the same latitude as and can and will in the lifetime of those I am now addressing, support as great a population as the Scandinavian peninsulas of the old world. It is curious how our fate as a nation has often driven us forward toward greatness in spite of the protests of many of those who esteemed themselves in point of training and culture best fitted to shape the nation's destiny. In 1803, when we acquired the so-called Louisiana Purchase, When we acquired the territory stretching from the Mississippi to the Pacific, there were plenty of wise men who announced that we were acquiring a mere desert, that it was a violation of the Constitution to acquire it, and that the acquisition was fraught with the seeds of dissolution of the Republic. And think how absolutely the event falsified the predictions of those men. And so when, in the late 60s, we by treaties acquired Alaska, this great territory, This territory, with its infinite possibilities, was taken by this Republic, in spite of the bitter opposition of many men who were patriots according to their lights, and who esteemed themselves far-sighted. Many men who held that we were doing ourselves and the nation a wrong by acquiring this territory, which is now one of the possessions upon which we pride ourselves most. But five years ago, there were excellent men who bemo- bemoaned the fact that we were obliged during the war with Spain to take possession of the Philippines and to show that we w- were hereafter to be one of the dominant powers of the Pacific. And in every instance, how the after events of history have falsified the predictions of the men of little faith. And now there are critics so feeble and so timid that they shrink back when this nation asserts itself that it comes in the category of the nations who dare to be great. And they want to know, forsooth, the cost of greatness and what it means. We don't know the cost, but we know that it will be more than repaid 10 times over by the result. What it may ultimately mean we do not know. What the present holds, what the present needs demand, we know, and we take the present and hold ourselves ready to abide the results of whatever the future may bring. And when I speak to you of the Pacific slope, to you of the Northwest, the new Northwest, to you whose cities are seated here by the sound, I speak to people abounding in their youth and their virile manhood, people who do not fear to grasp opportunity as the opportunity comes, and who weigh slight risk but lightly in the balance when on the other side of the scale comes the greatness of triumph, the greatness of conquest, the greatness of acquisition. We took Alaska 35 years ago, and at last we have begun to wake up to the heritage that thereby we handed over to our children and our children's children. And now I speak to you, citizens of Alaska, people who have dwelt therein, to say how much all our people have to owe to you. During the last year, many wise laws have been put upon the statute books in reference to Alaska, but not as many as should have been put there by a good many. I earnestly hope that Congress will speedily provide for a delegate from Alaska, so that the people of the territory may have some recognized exponent, whose duty it shall be to place their needs before the national legislature. Meanwhile, with the assistance of the senators and representatives in Congress from this section of the country, I shall do all that in me lies to see that the proper type of legislation, the proper kinds of legislation are enacted for the territory. The immediate cause of the great development of Alaska, of course, is to be found in its mines. But most of the people of this country are wholly in error when they think of their mines as being the sole, or even the chief permanent cause of Alaska's future greatness. Alaska has untold possibilities of agricultural and pastoral development. Not only her mines, her fisheries, her furs, but her agriculture and her stock raising will combine to make Alaska one of the great wealth-producing and man-producing portions of our republic. And I am anxious that our laws should be framed, not in the interest of those who wish to skin the country and then leave it, but in the interest of those who intend to go there and stay there and bring up their children there and make it in very fact as well as in name an integral part of this republic. And I ask your help and I pledge you my help in the effort to secure such legislation. Let me tell you just exactly how I mean it. In the case of a mine, you get the metal out of the earth. You cannot leave any metal in there to produce other metal. In the case of a fishery, a salmon fishery, if we are wise, if you are wise, you will insist upon it being carried on under conditions which will make the salmon fishery as profitable in that river 30 years hence as now. Don't take all the salmon out and go away and leave the empty river to your children and children's children. Take it out under conditions and mind you, the conditions are ready to be carried out for you by the National Fish Commission, which has been so singularly successful in its work, under conditions which will secure the preservation of that river as a salmon river, which will secure the perpetuation of the salmon canneries along its banks so that it will not, be, it will be not an industry carried on by imported Orientals in the employ of three or four alien capitalists. I think you see that I understand some of the conditions, but see that it is carried on in such a way as to be a perpetual source of income to the actual settlers resident in the locality. Now, is not that the common sense way to go at the situation? Exactly. Just in the same way, I want to have you see that the lumber industry is exploited in a way which, while giving a great return to those engaged in it at the moment, shall also secure the preservation of the forest for the settlers and the settlers' children that are to come in and inherit the lands. I wish to see the land laws so enacted, such land laws enacted, and to see them so administered as to be in the interest of the actual settler who goes to Alaska to live who desires there to produce crops, to raise stock, and to make a home for himself. Subject to this condition, that is, subject to the condition of shaping the legislation in the interest of the actual home seeker who is making a home for himself and for future generations, subject to that condition, I desire to see legislation shaped in a spirit of the broadest liberality that will secure the quickest possible development of the resources of Alaska with that end in view to have all of the encouragement possible given to those seeking to establish by steamship line and by railway quick and efficient transportation facilities in the territory. I believe in the pioneer, even when he is as well dressed as the pioneer I am addressing. I recollect by the way of recently speaking to an Arctic explorer who had come across Siberia. And he told me of the immense hardships he had suffered as he worked along across the Asiatic provinces of Russia and with infinite labor and at an immense peril of starvation, finally got to the waters which separated Asia from America and crossed the American possessions within the Arctic where he at once found himself in a summer hotel where on account of deficiency in civilized clothing, he was not allowed to dine at the first table. Few things have been more typical of our people and have been more full of promise for the future than the way in which the resources of Alaska have been developed. And When one sees what has been done there during the last few years, I think we have cause to feel abundantly justified in our belief that the qualities of the old time pioneers who first penetrated the wooded wilderness between the Alleghenies and the Mississippi and then steered their way across the vast seas of grass from the Mississippi to the Rockies, who penetrated the passes of the barren mountains and then came to this, the greatest of all the oceans, that their qualities still survive in their grandsons and successors. Nor must we forget, in speaking of Alaska, the immense importance that the territory has from the standpoint of the needs of the nation as a whole, as a dominant power in the Pacific, Exactly as with the building of the Isthmian Canal, we shall make our Atlantic and our Pacific coasts in effect continuous. So the possession and peopling of the Alaska sea coast puts us in a position of dominance as regards the Pacific, which no other nation shares or can share. Let me say a word of greeting now, not only to the Alaskans present, but to all of you, Alaskans and others, simply as Americans. A word of a special greeting to my friends, the exponents of the higher education. As I came in, there were fond moments when I almost imagined myself at a football match. Uh, Seriously, nothing has pleased me more in coming through the Pacific Northwest than to see the way in which, together with your astounding material progress, you have prepared for the building upon it of the higher life, intellectual and spiritual. A material foundation is indispensable. Without it, we can do nothing but with only that material foundation, we could do little. We need to have built upon it the kind of life which will give to the citizenship of the community the chance of developing itself along the loftiest lines. And you who have received from the state a college education, you who have received from the state any education or who have received from any source any education, you are bound to feel that you have been derelict in your duty unless you make for that education the return of good and enlightened citizenship. It is not open to you to say that you will or will not make that return as you choose. If you do not make it, you are a derelict in your duty, and you have shown yourselves unworthy of what you have received. We have a right to demand from you that you shall show yourselves able to take the lead in all of the work of the state which requires a disinterested and far-sighted adherence to the principles which have made this nation great in the past. Wherever I have gone today, wherever I have gone since I have struck the Pacific coast, I have been greeted by men of the Grand Army, by men who fought in the great war for the Union, and I wish to state also that I have been greeted here and there by Americans just as loyal, just as devoted to our country, who in that contest wore the gray instead of the blue. For one great feature of that war was that the victors left us the right of brotherhood with the vanquished, left us the right of feeling keen pride in the valor and self-devotion of all Americans who took part in that contest, whether they fought against the stars in their course or with them. And those men left us a heritage of undying honor and glory because when the call was made, they rose above all material considerations, because they were spurred on by a lofty and generous enthusiasm which counted all that life held dear and life itself as not in the balance compared with fealty to an ideal. And I ask now that the people of this generation, the men and women of this generation, in their turn, show in their lives the same capacity for high endeavor, the same resolute purpose, the same fealty to a lofty ideal, combined with the power of seeking to achieve it in practical ways that was shown by the men of the great civil war. I ask that because I know that you, my fellow countrymen, you and those like you from one end of this country to the other, having you the spur of the spirit which will drive you to give it, because you have that spur and will respond to it I believe in your future with all my heart and soul, and I am proud that I can call myself your fellow citizen. Good night. And I say good morning from the beautiful Badlands. We had some of that rain for which we've been hoping and praying for the benefit of the rancher and the farmer in these Badlands. Tonight on stage at the Old Town Hall Theater, my honor and privilege, Uh, to uh, prayerfully and and, uh, with earnestness, but with a great deal of delight, bring uh, my interpretation of Theodore Roosevelt to life. The Teddy Roosevelt Show this year in Medora will focus on Teddy's time in the Badlands, reminiscences by uh, a a fat old man, as we're wont to call ourselves and as T.R. referred to himself later in life. Uh, We're going to uh, salute uh, all who serve. We're going to give thanks and we're going to have some fun For indeed, it's my pleasure to uh, bring uh, onto the stage a character uh, of whom his uh, daughter, Alice Roosevelt Longworth said, father wanted to be the bride at every wedding, the corpse at every funeral, and the baby at every christening. Uh, I look forward to seeing you here in Medora and seeing you on Monday, Memorial Day, uh, as we continue Teddy Talks in this month of May. Goodbye.